Growing up, my family was very active in our church. I sang in the choir. My mom taught CCD. One day, our priest called a meeting with my mom and told her that she was not living up to the church's expectations and that she was disappointing. My mom asked why. Among other reasons, she was told it was because she was divorced and because the priest didn't see her at mass every Sunday. So where was my mom on Sundays? She was at the soup kitchen with me. My mom taught me at a very young age that Christianity and faith was about being part of a community, about recognizing our privilege and blessings and doing what we can to be of service to others, especially people who are marginalized, targeted, and who had less, often unfairly. This is Dominic Preziosi, editor of Commonweal. You just heard a clip of Mallory McMorrow, Democratic State Senator of Michigan, speaking in the chamber of the Michigan State House on April 19th. She was responding to a Republican colleague's fundraising email that accused McMorrow of grooming and sexualizing children for her support of LGBTQ people, while also questioning her Christian faith. A video of her speech went viral, gaining not only national but also international attention. McMorrow's full-throated profession of a Christian faith that emphasizes care and support for the vulnerable and powerless came to be seen as much more than a rebuke issued in the heat of the political moment. It's been welcomed on the left as a much-needed statement of principles, a counter to the performative nonsense, as she called it, of the religious right, and a call to fight for the marginalized and targeted. Mallory McMorrow is here to speak with us on this episode of the Commonweal Podcast. Senator Mallory McMorrow, thank you for being here with us on the Commonweal Podcast. Thanks for having me. So now it's been a bit more than a week since you delivered your remarks on the floor of the chamber at the Michigan State House, and obviously the response has been huge. Would you have ever thought that this might generate such attention? And now that it has, what has it been like for you and your family and your staff and colleagues? No, certainly not. I mean, not it is not the week that I thought I was going to have when I woke up last Monday, and certainly not the response that I think any state legislator is thinks that they're going to have. I, I tend to, when I speak on the Senate floor, we like to share our videos back on our own social media page and in our email. It's my way of talking to my constituents, the people that I represent. Occasionally, it goes a little broader than that, but certainly not to 15 million people and the response that we've seen. So it has been Overwhelming, but I think overwhelming in a really positive way. We have been inundated with phone calls and emails and letters and social media posts. And I stopped at my my PO box uh, a couple of days ago, and it was just stuffed to the gills. I took a picture of it, and overwhelmingly, it is people saying thank you of all walks of life. You know, people of faith people not of faith, the LGBTQ community. We have had seniors, young people, parents of gay and trans kids, and, and who have just said that it feels so reassuring and wonderful to, to talk about people as people and that it really mattered. And I have I've received a lot of really personal stories from people too about one older gay man in particular who remembers living through kind of the first gay scare, but says that he's lived a life of service and that he has been of service to family members of his who have been sick and needy and then that he's always given back and worked at soup kitchens. And he just feels like that service has gone, acknowledged isn't the right word, but 
that service isn't noticed because the focus is returning to this target on the LGBTQ community. And he just said, thank you for being somebody who's not a part of our community, but standing up for us and really reminding a lot of people that service and community is about what we do for each other. So it's been really wonderful, even if I haven't slept at all. So you said that you wanted to reclaim faith from people who are using it as a weapon to hate other people. And while your remarks were geared toward a specific legislator after some of the things she said and actions she's taken, how attuned were you already to the weaponization of faith in this way? What were you paying attention to in Michigan and elsewhere that brought you to this point? I'd been paying attention to it for a while. It's a strange thing when you run for office because you fill out a lot of forms when you're asking groups or newspapers or outlets to endorse your candidacy. And you fill out the information, you know, it's your name and where you live and are you married and do you have kids? And then there's a line for religion and it's usually a one word answer. And even from the first time I ran for office, I've never really known how to answer that because I think myself, like a lot of people, It's a really important part of my life, but it's also more complicated than one word. So it's been a a challenging thing to think about, but I have seen it weaponized even before I was in this role. And I think having to acknowledge that I was raised Catholic, the Catholic Church itself has a dark history and, and current history as well of some of this abuse within the church. So I think faith can be incredibly powerful and hopeful and a source of hope, but it can also be weaponized. And I think that is something we always have to recognize is that balance of something this powerful and what it means when we see it in the world and how we respond to it. You know, I want to get to some of this specific language you used and hinted at it even just now and the the way you delivered it, because some of us who listened heard unusually compelling and familiar language. I mean, even from the way you talked about CCD without explaining what it is for those who might not know, to referencing the longtime president of uh, Notre Dame, Ted Hesburgh, your alma mater being Notre Dame. What was your intent in drawing on these parts of your upbringing and experience? You know, for me, it's the power of a story and and details matter in a story. So I think part of it was a signal to people who also consider themselves people of faith that I'm not making this up. I know what I'm talking about. This is a, a, an authentic, real part of my upbringing. But I also don't think you need to define it for those who don't. It's the, the sort of beauty of every time I hear anybody tell a story is the richness of details. And I wanted to have enough of those to kind of say, this is real. This is part of me and my story. And kind of have that nod to to those who do know what it means. And for those who don't, I don't think it took away from any of what I was trying to say. I think uh, personally, and I think maybe for others too, I think the way you emphasized Father Hesburgh marching alongside Martin Luther King when he was alive, you emphasized. Did you think you were going to deliver it that way or was that sort of a spontaneous decision or it was? No, I I had written it that way. And I think to put it into context, so here in Michigan, we are also currently grappling with the shooting of Patrick Leoya in Grand Rapids, a black man who was shot in the back of the head by a police officer during a traffic stop. And we saw the protests in the wake of the murder of George Floyd. And here in Michigan, there has been bipartisan legislation introduced to improve the experience that Black Michiganders, Black Americans have with police. And that legislation hasn't moved. 
And we see this is still happening and there's real pain in Grand Rapids right now. So I, I wanted to say that intentionally because we've heard some of our colleagues looking at this situation and saying what we've heard a lot of times, which is, well, he just should have complied. And I have grown very close with Senator Adam Ollier, one of my colleagues from Detroit. And over the past few years, we've shared stories with each other about what it's like. He's a young black man with two kids, and it's a very different lived experience than I have getting in the car. And what are people going to think of my daughter, who, who looks like me, is going to be very different than the immediate impact to his son. When Adam runs, he and I are runners. He makes sure he's always wearing neon colors. He's also an active duty military member. So he'll wear something that identifies that intentionally because he knows if he wears black or a hoodie that he's putting himself at risk. So I really wanted to be intentional about people often quote Dr. King now, but it wasn't popular to march besides him when he was alive. He was a controversial figure because he said what he said and he did what he did and he saw injustice and was asking for white Americans to recognize it and to be active participants, not to stand on the sidelines. So I really wanted to highlight that, that Father Ted could have easily just said, it's not my problem. And he didn't. He saw injustice and people who needed help and allies and took that risk when he was alive. And it wasn't a popular thing to do. Yeah, you spoke very powerfully about the responsibility that power and privilege confer on those who possess it, the duty to offer service, protection, and allyship to the marginalized and powerless. And I think a lot of us have been waiting for something like this. I think this is the, the response is indicative of this, right? Why aren't we getting it? And how can we begin to act? I think it's, it's the, even the word privilege, I think has been politicized. I get pushback of being, I'm white privilege McMorrow. There are certain people who I'm senator white privilege and, and that's used as a pejorative. And for me, especially the way that I was raised, it's nothing to feel bad about, but it's something to acknowledge. And I think all of us have some privilege comparatively to others. We have something that others don't, regardless of our income or our education level or how comfortable we are. And there's always something that we can offer to somebody else. And it is, I think that service is a privilege. If we have the ability and the mental capacity and the time to be of service in a way, that is a privilege. And I, I wanted to really address that, but it's so easy to be comfortable and to say, you know what, this isn't my issue. And I think for a lot of people who look like me, there's also a fear of maybe engaging in the wrong way or saying the wrong thing. And, and I think in, in, a, in an attempt to sometimes be sensitive and a fear of saying the wrong thing, too often people aren't saying anything at all. And it's not doing anything to stop hate from growing and, and being weaponized in really dangerous ways. So a moment ago, you, you hinted at this, and, and in some of your interviews prior to this, you've been pretty frank that even though you continue to draw on what informed you being raised Catholic, the experience you had with the church growing up was not the best. How do you go about reconciling some of these factors? I mean, how do you stay committed to ideals like faith and service when the church you were raised in can sometimes seem to make it so hard? Yeah, and I, it's been a lifelong 
journey. I, it's not a struggle. Struggle is the wrong word, but a journey to figure out those two things. And I think of it like any job that you're in. You can get hired into a job and you think it's your dream job because it's a company that you admire and you love. But if the management is bad when you get in, it might not be the experience that you wanted, but that doesn't necessarily mean that changes what that organization stands for or is. And that's sort of the, the way that I equate this. I mean, the fact that the management of my church, the physical place, didn't offer the best, most welcoming experience to me and my mom and my family doesn't mean that faith is any less powerful. And I think I really wanted to take from my mom and she had me when she was pretty young, she was 25. So I think even she was figuring out how to best express that. She taught CCD for a while and was very active in choir with us and and all of the activities. And I think she really found her comfort and her strength in service, in the soup kitchen, in inviting people to her house. I joke with people, I never had a key to my house growing up. Like people just walked in and sat down and started eating food and it didn't matter who they were, where they were from. And sometimes it was strangers. And that was probably looking back, like not a super safe thing to do, but that's just who she was. You know, our house was a community center for anybody who wanted a place to go or somebody to talk to. She would regularly invite a man over who worked at the grocery store who I don't know that he even had any family of his own and he was mentally disabled, but he was always over at our house for barbecues and dinners and and we got to get to know him and hang out. And that is really what I grew into was modeling her. She was always of service to others, sometimes to her own detriment. But I think that's what she really took out of. You don't have to be in church in the same pew every Sunday, but you can do things in your daily life every single week that are of service and express faith through works. We'll be back in a minute with my conversation with Mallory McMorrow. Is the Spirit leading you to discover your unique mission in the world? At the Franciscan School of Theology at the University of San Diego, continue to deepen your faith journey and discover your unique role in caring for our world and the Catholic Church with rigorous master's programs led by world-class scholars. FST's courses and lectures dive deep into the heart of Franciscan spirituality, theology, and social thought, integrating the Catholic faith and the Franciscan vision of civic life and church leadership. The Franciscan School of Theology offers three on-campus degrees, the Master of Theological Studies, the Master of Divinity, and Master of Arts, and an online degree, the Master of Theological Studies, with a specialization in Franciscan theology. Learn to put theology to work in the world at FST. Find true and perfect joy. Visit fst.edu for more information and to start your application today. Current polling shows that a majority of Americans do support codifying key LGBTQ rights. Do you see a role for religion and I guess particular Christianity in helping to convert this popular support into legislative policy? Yeah, I think so. And I think it's it's a lot more people. I know that I am not an anomaly in terms of my own sort of experience with faith and for those who are faithful or have faith. I think just standing up and saying so, that these things are not at odds with each other, that I fundamentally believe that religious freedom in the United States means you have every right to practice and express 
your religious freedom and belief so long as it does not hurt others. You don't have the ability to inflict your personal beliefs on other people. So I don't see any conflict between ensuring that our LGBTQ friends and neighbors have the same protections from discrimination that I have with faith. So I think that just a lot more of us should get a little more comfortable with just saying so, because we know the support is there. And again, I think it goes back to that. I'm not exactly sure how to say this, so I'm just not going to say anything. And we have to get over that fear. Yeah. Uh, How big a role did your understanding of faith and religion play in your decision to enter a life of public service or to become a politician? You know, I don't know that I actively thought about it, but I, so I graduated from Notre Dame and I always wanted to be a car designer. And I got to do that first. I interned for Mazda and then I went on to Mattel and I was a designer for Hot Wheels, which was super fun. And every four-year-old thinks I'm very cool. And Um, 57-year-olds too. (laughs) 57-year-olds. And even before my husband and I had our daughter, I have a huge Hot Wheels collection. So when we moved, the movers asked, how old is your son? I'm like, those are mine. And I loved my job, but I also realized I really missed the service aspect of what we did. So even going through Notre Dame, a lot of the projects that we did in my industrial design program, which is what I graduated with a degree in, was about service. We designed refugee shelters for disaster areas. And we're thinking about how to create kind of a pop-up school if there is a refugee crisis to create a sense of normalcy. And I really loved that process. So I don't know that it was as linear as my faith drove me to service, but I think that it has definitely made me a better public servant in how I approach this job and probably how I found myself in this space, which is not, wasn't my original career plan. Yeah. I want to talk about a phrase you used in in your remarks on the floor, uh, and it really resonated for, I think, a lot of us, performative nonsense, which you used as a criticism. To what extent do you see this taking the place of authentic political action and the responsibility of delivering concrete gains for constituents? I think one of the frustrating things to me is not only are the actions of the senator who said the really hateful things about me, not only are they negative towards the LGBTQ community, they're really disingenuous to her own supporters because it's a way to deflect. It's a way to scapegoat. and make people so angry and hateful that they somehow believe that the reason your healthcare costs are too high is because a trans fifth grader wants to play soccer. And that is wrong. So I think that really getting back to authenticity, I remember one of my favorite classes in college was comparative religion. I loved learning about all of the different religions and frankly, what we had in common versus differences. And I I vividly remember sitting in class with a student who had gone through Catholic school and I was public school K-12, but he made the argument that, I forget what book we were reading, but that the character couldn't be held responsible for his actions because he wasn't a practicing Catholic, that he wasn't in church every Sunday and didn't hear the lessons that were being told to him. And I just thought that was such nonsense. Like, it doesn't take sitting in the same pew every Sunday to look around the world and your community and take the lessons of faith and apply them through works and love and reaching out to the sick and the poor and those who have less. So that is really what I tried to hit on is, you know, just writing in a survey that you are Christian or putting in your Twitter bio is not the same. It's performative and it's nonsense and it's not showing faith through works. 
So fairly or not, democratic politicians are perceived not to acknowledge how faith and religion figure into their lives and their work as legislators and leaders, and that this might even hurt them electorally. Yet we do see from figures like President Biden and others that indeed faith can guide their approach to policy and to action. Do Democrats have a faith problem they need to address? And I guess if so, how do they do it without engaging in just a different version of performative nonsense? Yeah, and I don't want to claim that my story is everybody's story. I do think that people are hungry, and I think the response to this speech shows that, although it certainly wasn't my intention, for authenticity, to feel like and trust the person that is asking for your vote. It's a heavy thing. I am asking people to trust me to be their representative in their state capital, to vote on their behalf, to express what they need. And that takes a lot of trust. And I think everybody should share what their own beliefs are, even if it's complicated and it's not as clear cut and dry as I am Catholic or I am Jewish or I am Muslim. If you have a faith background, wonderful. Tell people about it. If you don't and you find service in other ways or value in the community, share what that is. Because I think that the most important thing is we find that connection with people first. What do we have in common? And I think a lot more of us love our families, love our communities, love our neighbors, want to help people. And in whatever version of faith we believe in, we all have that in common. And I think that's something that I hope, whether you're a Democrat or a Republican, we find authentic ways to talk about. Because again, going back to my favorite class being comparative religion, we might have different beliefs, but that's what's really interesting about getting to know people. So you said in your remarks that day that each of us is responsible for deciding what happens next for writing the next chapter of history. And I guess the inevitable question here is then, how do you plan to proceed from here? How are you working on deciding what happens next? I mean, if anything, this past week has just really renewed my faith in in this job and why I'm doing this job. Because it can be super frustrating to come to work every day. I've introduced 40 bills since taking office almost four years ago, and none of them have even gotten a hearing just because of my party. And I flipped a district from one to another. And, you know, politics is politics. but we have an ability to really try to message and to help and to change how people get involved. I've heard from a lot of people in my district when I've been walking around since giving the speech who have said that, especially after the past few years, everybody's tired. And it felt like we didn't have a way forward and everybody was just really struggling to show up every day and just get through the day. Even those of us who are like me, comfortable suburban moms, it doesn't mean that the past few years haven't been hard. But my hope is that moving forward, if I can help inspire more people like me who are not members of marginalized groups to realize that we have not only the duty, but the power to stand with our neighbors and help them when they are being targeted unfairly, that we can do that. And I've had a huge response from a lot of moms, a lot of moms on Twitter, (laughs) sort of joke, get the minivan ready, I'll bring snacks. And it's really exciting. So I'm, I'm excited about what's ahead. Mallory McMorrow, thanks so much for being with us on the Commonwealth Podcast. Thanks, Dominic. Appreciate it. The Commonwealth Podcast is produced by Assistant Editor Griffin Olenek and the Commonwealth staff in partnership with Sandberg Media. Wally Boudway composed the music and David Dalt did the editing. For the Commonweal Podcast, this is Dominic Preziosi.